Welcome to the Pokes Podcast. I'm Jacob Longen. As COVID-19 became a pandemic, Governor Kevin Stitt asked experts across the state to create models projecting how it would affect Oklahoma. One of those models came from a team at OSU, which included Mindy McCann, head of the Department of Statistics. She joined us just before the semester began to talk about the difficulty of making predictions about COVID-19, how much confidence we should have in the data, what it shows about the effectiveness of masks, and how important critical thinking is. So in our discussions before we started this podcast, one concept you and I talked about was the idea of garbage in, garbage out, which I think is very important to what you do. What does that phrase mean? Well, as far as statistics is concerned, your model can only be as good as the data that you're given. So if the data is faulty, or even if there's just a miscommunication between the analyst who collected the data and the statistician, as far as what the data was actually recording, then it's very, very difficult to get any kind of good model out of that. So as far as statistics is concerned, that's how that works. I've told a friend of mine over in animal science that I can't make a steak out of meat you've run through the grinder four or five times. I mean, that's just not going to happen. And so if we want a really great product on the other end, a model that can predict things correctly, we've got to have good data going in to help us make that model. Mm. Um, And one of the issues that we've had here recently with trying to model COVID is that the data is difficult to get a handle on. And there's several reasons for that. The first one is the health workers are dealing with people's lives and so not as concerned with getting the numbers in right. Um, That's one thing. I think in a lot of places, we've also realized that the systems that we're using to handle the numbers and the data are not really up to where we would like them to be. Um, And this has been an illustration of that. And then there's been some, like, what does a case mean? Does a case mean that someone has tested positive? Or do you have to have tested positive and have symptoms? What if you've never had a test, but you had symptoms and your doctor thinks that that was probably what it was? So, and obviously how that is defined as far as what a case is, is different from one one doctor to another, one hospital to another, one state to another. And so that's another question. What do you mean by you had X number of people doing this? And so that's been one of the issues with trying to model this data. Another thing is that we're trying to, we're not just trying to predict a line, a straight line. We're trying to predict a curve, like if it's going to go over and down. And that requires some information about the curve. Most of the time we get that because we know how things like this have behaved in the past. Obviously, that's been a problem here. We're not quite sure about what to do there. And so how do you model something in the future that you guess is going to curve down, but you're not sure when or how? Well, that's that's almost impossible. A concept you just hit on was, it seems to me that it would be 
really hard to predict the future of something that is so new. This is a disease that's only been around since November or December, right? So that has to make it very difficult for you to predict the trajectory. Is that right? Yes. That's one of the reasons why um, the modeling team that I'm a part of went with an SEIR model instead of just trying to look at how the data is and fit the curve. The SEIR model is a model that takes into account the epidemiology involved in a disease. And so while it's completely true that we don't know the parameters for this particular disease, utilizing that model does allow us to use what we know about how all viruses behave. And then what we're guessing on is less, if that makes sense. And so that gave us a sort of a background, you know, it was, it was saying, you've got to give me these numbers. And we didn't know what those numbers were, but we could provide some reasonable guesses, but then we didn't have to make decisions about when the curve was going to turn down or those kinds of things. Those were all the science drove those. And so that was very helpful because without it, you can't just do curve fitting without some information or some guesses about what the curve's going to do. And the modeling team, you all are looking, you're working specifically on Oklahoma, right? Correct. Are you using any data that isn't Oklahoma? Well, yes and no. We don't use any data that's not Oklahoma to assess our model. We did at the beginning. We had to get some idea of what Um, An SERIR model requires a reproduction rate for the virus. And when we started this, we'd only had, you know, a handful of cases. Um, We were just getting started in Oklahoma. We probably had a couple hundred, but, you know, there weren't, it wasn't, there wasn't enough information in Oklahoma to get a guess at that. So we had to try to look at populations that we thought were somewhat similar to Oklahoma to get an idea um, and then, of course, we we modified that as we got more data. So we did look at data outside of Oklahoma just to get some ideas when we didn't have any Oklahoma data, but then we used the Oklahoma data to refine those estimates. What is the point of the modeling team? You all are working with the state government to give them some predictions? We were at the beginning. The reason we got together in the first place was because the governor asked us to. He pulled in a team from OU, a team from OSU, and used some people from the State Department. And then we all kind of came together and looked at okay, this is what our model predicts, this is what your model predicts, what's kind of a consensus idea about about what's going on here. Um, And that was a very interesting process. So we were providing predictions to the governor on a biweekly, you know, a couple of times a week basis. Once the governor made the decision to open back up, then he felt like his modeling team was going to be sufficient, the epidemiologists in the state. So we're not providing that information straight to him anymore. We did, however, continue with our modeling for a couple of reasons. We've got a couple of publications about some issues that have come up that we think will be beneficial to policymakers and and epidemiologists and statisticians that are trying to deal with this kind of situation. And then we felt like 
the university and perhaps some other individuals in the state government might want our predictions in the future. And then one of the members of our team, Dr. Jared Taylor, has now been taken a six-month appointment as a state epidemiologist. And so he's obviously very interested in wanting us to continue. He feels like that is going to help him navigate a few things and wants to be able to provide those predictions. So now we're back in providing information for the state government, although not straight to the governor. Now it's in through the state health department. And for someone like me, I live in Stillwater. My wife teaches kindergarten in Stillwater and I've got two children. So obviously the thing I'm most concerned about is Stillwater, OSU, maybe Payne County, Oklahoma and America, but in that order. (laughs) Your model is statewide, but do you do more localized models as well? We don't. We certainly could look at doing that. One of the issues with just breaking it down to a county level, I think, is going to be that, again, you're not going to have quite enough data. Mm -hmm. It would be more reasonable to just plug those values into the model for the state, if that makes sense, Mm -hmm. um, and kind of look at what that guess would be or to take the predictions for the state. In fact, this is probably the, you know, as we're talking on the fly, this is probably the best way to do it would be to take the state model and then sort of look at how the state model numbers have corresponded to the county as we've moved forward and use that to try to make a guess at what those county numbers are going to be. My guess is that we're going to see the same kinds of progressions. What we've been noticing is that the urban and the rural parts of our state have a different progression here. I think there's a lot of reasons for that. At the very beginning, when there were no measures in place, I think it was simply because people in a city interact with more people than people out in the country. I mean, that's pretty easy. As we've moved forward, some of that has changed in that there's mask ordinances in large, some larger cities And that doesn't happen out in the country. And so I think there's a different perception as to how to handle that. Obviously, in Stillwater, I think we'd probably behave more like Tulsa and Oklahoma City. And so I think that would be an issue, too. Our model is split out into rural and urban and then combined back together because we feel like that makes a big difference as far as patterns, quickness to adopt new measures, and those kinds of things. And you mentioned mask ordinances. I know I saw something online the other day about a paper that talks about places with mask ordinances versus those that don't. Have you been able to tell anything yet about how effective they are? That is a very timely question. Just last week, now see, it ta- the, this is another problem with modeling this, is that it takes several weeks mm-hmm anything that you put in place to show up in any of the numbers, because that's just how long it takes for the disease to progress. And so the other day we were looking at our model, trying to to make some tweaks to it. And we said, okay, it looks like there's been a slowing down for this opening up. You know, it doesn't seem to be quite, it looks like it's starting to plateau at least, or, you know, it's not, the trajectory is not up like it was Mm -hmm. when we first started opening up. Where do we think that would have happened? And so we looked at the first and then we counted back a couple of weeks because that's about how long it takes. And sure enough, 
That's when the mask ordinance in Oklahoma City and Tulsa was put in place. I mean, to the day. Wow. And so the scientists have been telling us that we know masks make a difference. And we're really seeing that in our data, that it, mm-hmm. it, it is now. I don't know. We haven't had long enough yet to know if that's going to be a small difference or a huge difference, but it is making a difference. And mm-hmm. so for me, that is a lot easier now to, I mean, I was already saying I was already a big mass proponent, but now I'm even more of one because mm-hmm. I've got something to back it up with. And I'm sure this is something you deal with in statistics all the time, but for anybody listening who's not a statistician and maybe not even that versed on statistics, they could be listening and going, well, yeah, but ultimately this all comes down to humans and you can't really predict what a person is going to do. How do you handle that? Well, I think that's a very good point. In fact, that's one of the things that the base model that we chose to use, the SEIR, assumes that people interact randomly. And obviously that's not true and it's not correct. And so we always have to keep in mind as we're looking at our model that there's sort of some built-in variability in the model, not in the data, in the model, because we know it's not exactly right. But we're still looking at a big enough population that the fact that we're not exactly right kind of evens out, if that makes sense. And so, yes, I would agree. It would be impossible to predict how a certain person is going to react Mm -hmm. and how that person is going to handle a statement about they're supposed to wear a mask or what they're going to do as far as trying to limit their interactions or not limit their interactions based on their own personal assessment of risk and, you know, how they want to live their life and those kinds of things. However, we are able to use what we've seen about the data for the disease progressing to make some statements about the reproductive rate for the society as a whole. And people don't, you know, individual A is not going to be exactly that rate. Individual B is not, but we've sort of averaged it together. In statistics, there's something called the central limit theorem that says numbers get big and we average things together and stuff gets better to handle. And essentially, that's the same thing here. I did a little bit of statistical work for my thesis. So I took a graduate statistics course and I was amazed to learn that things like the bell curve, if you get enough data, that seems to be almost universal. You get enough data and you get that curve right? Well, for certain things, if you're averaging or totaling, you have enough things, you're going to get a bell curve. And so that is as, you know, that's the biggest thing statistics has going for it as far as we usually do want to think about averaging or totaling for a group. That's what we want. We don't, I mean, obviously we would prefer a prediction for each individual person, but that's just not I mean, if the scientists ever get to the point where there's a model for that, that would be great. But as a statistician, I'm never going to be able to do that. Mm-hmm. I just have to deal with the numbers. I can't, you know. Yeah. But that was the great thing about our modeling team is that we had scientists, political scientists, to think about the ramifications of decisions and what policymakers would want. And then we had some data people, myself and Dr. Shaka Bordi, who's over in 
the Spear School of Business and does data analytics. Okay. And I know I keep seeing nationally, I keep seeing the headlines about this model is changing its prediction for, you know, so many deaths by this date, that sort of thing. First of all, I assume you probably can't give us any real predictions that would, how do I say this? There's a delay between when you and I record this podcast and when we post it. I'm guessing that if you were to tell me today what the model is predicting, it would be changed by the time this was posted. So that may not have much value. Is that, is that right? Sometimes that it, it would depend on what every time there is a, a change in the situation. Okay. So for instance, in Stillwater, When the students come back to school, that's going to be a change that we're going to have to think about how that impacts a particular, if we were modeling just Stillwater, that would be a change that we have to, we have to figure out what that, it is obviously going to change the reproductive rate. The reproductive rate is how many people, each person who is infected also infects Mm -hmm. on average. And so if all the students are coming back, then people are interacting with more people. I mean, all you have to do for Stillwater is think about the difference between our summer town and our fall town. Mm -hmm. And you will immediately understand that the reproductive rate would be different for those two things just in a regular setting. So obviously it's going to be even more different now with mask and social distancing, but we don't know how that's gonna affect things. If the governor were to enact a safer at home again, then that would be something that we would also have to assume is going to affect the reproductive rate. And how is it going to affect the reproductive rate? Another thing that happened that took us a while to figure out is that the case fatality rates and the hospitalization rates at the beginning of this virus were higher than about a month or so in. Mm-hmm. And that was because the doctors and the nurses, the wonderful healthcare professionals, had learned some things about how to handle the disease. And we weren't losing as many people. And we weren't having to send as many people to the hospital because we had other things available. And so those kinds of things could also change the numbers. So, uh, you know, yes and no, our model doesn't change unless there's something that happens. And then we have to adjust some of our numbers in our model to mirror that. And of course, that's a problem because we've never had shutdown orders before. So how do we know how that's going to affect things? We've just kind of had to guess. And we've been lucky that we've had some intuition that has, that has turned out to work pretty well as far as what we would have guessed things might be. And of course, if we get, if we get a vaccine or we get something, then everything's different completely. Mm -hmm. If we get something in between a vaccine, I don't think we really need to worry about a vaccine. If we get something in between a vaccine, that's going to change the numbers too. Because if we get a really good therapeutic, now that's going to change our hospitalization rates. It's probably going to change our case fatality rates. And so those things have to go into place also. So yes and no. And any model any any stat- statistics or any predictions are if you've done a good job they're really pretty good out for a little while but the farther out you get the less confidence you have because if something else happens 
you're just modeling what you had. Mm -hmm. And if suddenly off the side over here, the, it takes a big jump down, you may not be able to accommodate that in your model. So where do you get the data that you put into it and how much confidence can we have in that data? Yes, that's a great question. Luckily for us, when we started this, since the governor was asking us to do it, we got the data straight from the health department. And now that Dr. Taylor is the epidemiologist, we still are getting data straight from them. There is that issue though. There is a delay sometimes, and you know, I think it's important for people to understand this. Sometimes the data that you that you have, like there were five new, let's say it says there were five deaths yesterday, five mm -hmm. new deaths. Okay, those deaths may not have all occurred that day. Mm because it's a question of when that information gets to the state health department. And, and once again, I'm not, you know, the healthcare workers are, are overworked. Um, we're short staffed for dealing with a lot of these issues because it's not times as normal. And so I'm not trying to point any fingers, but it is, the data is a delay. And honestly, I'm, I'm kind of, when we were um, starting this, I was kind of glad. I don't want, I don't want someone to be so concerned about the data that they don't help the person that's in mm. the hospital. But on the other hand, I think we could do better as far as data management. I think that's going to be something nationwide that we're going to see is that the data reporting from doctors and hospitals into the state health department, those systems could be better. So if people have questions about whether we're getting accurate numbers, whether it's in Oklahoma, nationally, or worldwide, obviously those numbers are very important for everything you're talking about. Are you confident that we are getting good numbers and you're able to make the best possible models based on the numbers you're getting? I'm not very confident in the data, no. However, I think that's just because most hospital staffs and most data collection systems are understaffed and outdated. And so my lack of confidence in the data is not lack of confidence in the people mm -hmm. or in the attempts to get it correct. It's in the systems that we have to store the data and in the fact that people can only do so much and we are asking them to do even more when we're asking them to keep count and to make sure their data records go in right. What we really need are systems where, I mean, hospitals have to be good about keeping certain kinds of information because it's, it's how they charge people and insurance companies. And that's the same kind of data that needs to get into the health department. I mean, what drives those, what drives what you charge someone is what happened to them. And that's the information that we need. So what we really need is just systems that automatically do that, that can pull off the data that's needed from the hospital records and get it into the health department without, you know, without too much work from the individuals. And I have almost zero confidence that most hospitals have those kinds of systems in place. And so I think from a statistics data management type approach, that's the lesson we need to learn here is that it's very, very important for those systems to be working. It's, you know, in the past, that might not have been as important that we get everything right. But when we're dealing with something new, we've got to have the right data and our systems are not set up to do that. Both 
not having enough people and not having enough, you know, systems that can do the same kinds of things that Google can collect and do Mm -hmm. stuff with. We need to have those same kinds of systems with our data management for our hospitals and our health departments. And do you have any idea? I've, I have heard both ways. I've heard people say these numbers are overblown and I've heard people say, no, these numbers are smaller than they are in reality. Do you have any insight into whether the actual cases and deaths and all that would be higher or lower than what we have seen? Like the true number would be higher or lower than the data we've seen? You know, I think there's certain numbers at certain times where I could make that guess. Like at this point, I'm sure we were undercounting deaths. And at this point, I'm sure we were overcounting deaths. I mean, there was a time where a lot of doctors were, because they wanted to make sure they didn't miss any COVID cases, anything that was suspected of a COVID death got marked as a COVID death. And then, you know, then the pendulum swings back the other way. So I do not, I do not have a feeling for that being consistently one way or the other. And honestly, I don't believe it's consistently one way or the other. I do know that there are certain periods and times with certain kinds of data that are recorded that we're sure we're overcounting or undercounting because of various things we find out later. But I don't see any consistency to that. And we know it because we figured it out and we were able to fix it, (laughs) Um, if that makes sense. So, Mm -hmm. you know, I, I do think that is an issue. People should obviously be concerned about that. But my feeling is that those are going to be, there's been enough one way and enough another way, if that makes sense. I'm not Mm -hmm. saying they average out, but I don't think it's a consistent pattern. And as a statistician, I'm guessing that a lot of times you might feel like the average person doesn't care too much about what you're doing, whether they should or not. What is it like for you right now when people are paying so much attention to statistics? Everybody suddenly knows all these terms that they might not know otherwise. Is it a, yeah. an interesting time? It is. That's very, it's very, um, of course, the fact that the nation models were so off at the beginning where they were predicting super high values, I don't think has given um, my field a very good rep. Um, So I'm a little bit concerned about the fact that we're basically being thrown hamburger and said, make a steak out of this and, and then getting judged because we couldn't make a steak out of it. And so that concerns me, but on the flip side, I think this should be an eye opener for many people that data can be very, very helpful in leading good decisions. I always tell my students in my intro statistics class You know, you just need to sit back for a minute and think about how many decisions you're going to be making in your life that could be better guided by some data. Like if you're, you get a test result back from a doctor. Okay. So now you're going to have to make a decision. If it's a positive test result for something, what are your options? And you're going to have to make decisions on that. And probably you're going to go at least spend some time out on the internet looking at data about things. And so you want some, at least some preliminary guidelines as for what things you might want to look at. A good example of this is, and this just drives me nuts right now, is when they they just give counts 
Okay, so they say, you know, Texas is the number three state in the country as far as cases because they have this many cases. And I just want to, because it matters how many people are in the state. Mm-hmm. That that needs to be a percentage because, you know, I can throw out a really big number at any point. I can say there's 5 million of these things. Okay, well, but if there's 2 trillion in the population, then that's a whole lot different than 5 million of 10 million. I yeah. mean, it, it's all relative to the population. And so it really bothers me on the national news when we're ranking our states just by the frequencies. Those should be relative frequencies because obviously Texas and California have a lot more people. They're going to have more cases because they have a lot more people. Even if the percentages are, they could even be smaller. And we still have more cases. And so those are the kinds of things that I think, you know, people need to understand as our world becomes more and more data driven, understanding a few things about how those numbers can be used to help you make decisions and what to look for are critical decisions, not just for your business, not just for, you know, the stock market, but for personal decisions about your health, about, you know, your family situation, about cost of living, those decisions can be helped with some statistical information. Does your model take into account things like Stillwater is about to basically double in population? I realize a lot of that population will be coming from other places in Oklahoma, so the state's not necessarily getting more people. But if Stillwater suddenly becomes more of a hot spot, does the model take into account things like that, that you're expecting more of a hotspot in this area or that area? Or is it just, you were saying earlier, rural and urban? Yeah, we've only got it split out into rural and urban, and then we're aggregating it back okay. together. One of the things we've done recently is to look at pulling out the long-term care facility data. And in the process of doing that, you can see, particularly at the beginning, the case fatality rates drop a lot when you pull those people out. So one other thing that we've looked at doing is trying to, to get a model together for, for modeling a more specific, smaller group. So how do you model disease progression in a hotspot? Mm. And maybe that should then be removed from the rest of the population. I mean, you can make that argument with the long-term care facilities very easily because what does a shutdown order mean for a long-term care facility? Those people aren't, for the most part, leaving anyways. Mm -hmm. So we're not, you know, we're now, obviously we would want to restrict visitors, of course, and a shutdown order would do that. But if that's the population that's driving most of our fatalities, then I think that should affect what policymakers decide to do because, you know, the population that is driving the bad numbers is not the one that we're making the requirements for. Now, that was earlier on. I think we're seeing some changes here. You can see in the national news that we're getting more cases in the younger adults because Mm -hmm. they're mixing now because they just can't stand being at home any longer, I guess, or at least that's my intuition here. And so I think that those things are changing, but I do think we need to be aware that 
certain subpopulations can be driving aggregate data and have a mechanism for removing that part if that tends to be what's driving the whole. I mean, you don't need to shut down the whole state if really all that's happening is out in the panhandle, we had a meat processing plant that mm-hmm. had an episode and that's driving everybody, you know, that we just need to focus on that part. And I think we need to be aware of those possibilities and try to figure out how to, how, that's why you have to look at the data. I always tell my students, you can't, yes, I'm going to teach you how to use Excel and SAS and SPSS to just get numbers out the other end. But if that's all you're doing, you're going to miss a whole lot of stuff. Mm. You really have to look at the data and try to think about what could be driving things that look different than they've been in the past and, and try to get a handle on those kinds of things. And ideally, be working with a researcher who knows something about the area that the data is coming from, like in this case, an epidemiologist, or if I'm dealing with cattle, then I hope I've got someone who knows something about that because I'm not going to know what to look for in the data. Sounds like one thing you're hitting on and something we like to talk about a lot in arts and sciences, a real value of arts and sciences is we teach you how to think critically, right? Don't just accept everything at face value. You have to really, are we seeing what we expect to see? Why are we not seeing what we expect to see? That sort of thing. And that really also seems to be a real value of statistics, right? You're are are you are you getting what you expect? If there's one thing I could get intro stat students to understand, it's variability. Mm-hmm. Okay, so just because I didn't get exactly what I expected, is it different enough mm-hmm. that you can say there's there's something going on here and then dig and try to find out what that is? That's what statistics does is help you identify it shouldn't be due just to variability there should be something else driving the difference. And I think that's really important because we don't have a handle on, I mean, you know, I I may be able to know what's a really big difference and what's a difference that's so small that I don't care about, but it's that middle gray range. And that's where we need some concrete information and some analysis about variability to tell us when it really is enough. Mm. So you're talking about things people misunderstand. Are there any other common misconceptions that people have about statistics that you would like to talk about? I'm sure that you, you said earlier, it drives you nuts when the news says Texas has this many cases. Is there anything else that you think you would like our listeners to get as far as this is yes. what statistics does or doesn't do? Yes. In terms of relative frequency, don't get led down the path as far as just the raw number. It matters what the denominator is. Seven out of 10 is a lot different than seven out of a thousand. Another thing that I think is important to talk about here, let's think about an individual here in the time of COVID. So let's suppose your boss tells you that you need to get screened for COVID before you come back to work. So you don't necessarily have any symptoms, you're not concerned, but you go in and you take your test and it comes back positive. If you come back with a positive test result, you have a different decision to make. You're going to have to interpret it from your end, even if the probability that people that have the disease test positive is pretty high. 
Now you're looking at what's the probability I have the disease. Mm. That can be amazingly high, even when the test looks good. If it turns out that the disease is very rare, I don't think that would be the case here. But that's what you need to understand that what you need yourself is the probability, now that I know I've got a positive test result, what's the probability I've actually got COVID? That's what you need to be concerned with. And so I just really would like everyone to just try to take an intro stat class. I know that makes me a geek and a <laughs> professor of statistics. And of course, she's going to say that. But I really, really think in today's world, data is everywhere around us. We can use it to our benefit in our personal lives and our business lives and our careers, everything we do. And it's just going to get more. We're going to get more and more data. There's going to be more and more ways to misunderstand that data. And a little bit of understanding of it could really help you make good personal decisions and good business decisions. And um, I just think understanding data is important today. And now everyone wants to get a degree in statistics, right? Yeah. Big data, right? I mean, that's that is something we hear over and over. And that's going to be the case now. We used to have the issue of we don't have enough data. Now we actually have the issue that we have so much data that if you're trying to prove something is different from zero, we have so much data that even if it's 0.00002, we can still prove it's different. Mm. And so now we have to worry about the flip side of that and saying, okay, you don't really want to prove it's different. You want to prove it's more than this much different. Otherwise, it's not going to be a practical use. So I think what you're talking about there is statistical significance, right? Yes, and then the effect size here. So this is why I tend to, you know, you can, most of the time you have a choice between doing a hypothesis test or a confidence interval. And I always recommend to students to do a confidence interval because it's going to allow you to not just make a statistical decision, but also a practical decision. Mm -hmm. So for instance, let's suppose I'm trying to see if the difference between two means is zero or not. Okay. And so I get a confidence interval that doesn't include zero. It's all positive numbers. So it says one is bigger than the other, but the confidence interval is 0.0002 to 0.0004. I don't care. I don't care that those two means are different. Yes, they are. One is bigger than the other, but it's so small that no one is going to know. Mm. And so the confidence interval provides that additional information for you. And a hypothesis test would just tell you one is bigger than the other. Yeah, but, you know, not enough that you care. So do you tend to make decisions more statistically driven than the average person? My husband will say no. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I, I, it depends on what the decision is. I do tend to look at the data a lot when I'm making a decision where there's data to be had. If it's a personal decision about relationships or things like that, I tend not to do that at all. Just go with my gut. But If it's things like health or whatever, I do definitely find out the information. Mm -hmm. And that might not guide my decision if at some point I start to just feel 
very confident in my particular doctor or in a particular method, but at least I've already done the legwork behind it, if that makes sense. And when it comes to decisions at the office about the programs and those kinds of things, I'm always looking at the data. Well, and in that case, you've got some pretty big numbers to work with, right? You've got a lot of students and so you're, you're making decisions based on a whole bunch of data. And I guess when my children were born, I did want to know if they were boys or girls. I always made the joke that that's data I have to collect on the statistician. <laughs> so pre-2020, what type of research were you doing? What is your research? I've done a whole lot of things, but my main area of focus has been in multiple comparisons. So I'll give you the the version that might make sense to more people. So let's suppose we have five different drugs to treat. It could be COVID maybe. So we have five different drugs to treat COVID and we're trying to make a decision as to how those drugs relate to each other with their effectiveness. So you can do a confidence interval for drug one to drug two, drug one to drug three, drug one to drug four, drug one to drug five, and so on. You can do all of those pairs. But what I really want to know at the end is, is there a best one? Mm -hmm. And maybe if there's not a best one, are there two that are better than all the rest? Or maybe it's much more complicated than that, but I want to know how they all relate to each other. Well, if I've done all those pair confidence intervals, I can put those results together to get that overall picture. But the problem is, if I just do all those confidence intervals at 95%, the error in my overall conclusion is a whole lot bigger. It's Mm -hmm. not going to be 5% now. It can be as much as 25 or 30% if you have enough comparisons. And so my area of research is how do I put results together and make sure I control the overall error rate, the error rate for that final statement that says this one is the best, this one is the next best, and then after that I can't tell the difference or whatever it is that you come up with at the end. And it's been interesting because at the beginning of my research career, I had to make that argument every time I wrote a paper. Mm. I had to make the argument that we should be concerned about this. And then we started having genome-wide studies. Mm. And suddenly there were hundreds of thousands or 50,000 tests that people were running all the same time. And immediately it became the case that it was obvious that we had to adjust for multiplicity because we were getting all these false positives. And so that made my life much easier. I was really, I never, I I was like, yes, I don't (laughs) have to argue this anymore. Um, Now everyone understands multiplicity. And now we've almost gone the other way where we have so much data that we have to start thinking about not only adjusting for multiplicity, but, you know, making sure maybe we want to do some multiplicity adjustments in different stages where we've just looked at one group and then looked at all of them or because we've got to get we have to get a handle on the fact that we've got millions, not tens of thousands. Let me ask you a question about departments. First, I was surprised when I was hired by CAS and I memorized the 24 departments that are in CAS and realized for the first time, despite having had statistics as an undergrad and a graduate at OSU, that statistics and mathematics are two different departments at OSU. 
why is that? Do people ask you why those are separate? Because in my mind, statistics is a type of mathematics. Of course, I guess you could say, you know, well, why are there different sciences? But that surprised me that they're separate departments. Well, at OSU, we have a pretty good theoretical math department. So I think statistics branched off from mathematics as a separate area because the focus is so much different. So for instance, I look at our most mathematical statistics journals. A few of them do not require you to motivate your problem with a data example. And so they're just interested in the statistical theory, which would be very, very similar to the mathematics theory. And I think those statisticians that are dealing with that mostly would fit very well in a mathematics department. And I have lots of friends that are in statistics that are also in mathematics departments. It can work, but most statistics papers, you have to motivate your, you, you're not, it's not going to get published if you can't provide a real life data example where your solution is going to be needed and, and used. And so that's a different focus. And sometimes some theoretical mathematicians, now not any of my friends upstairs in the mathematics department here, Mm -hmm. but at other places, sometimes people in the math department don't think statisticians are doing enough theory. Mm -hmm. And so I think that's part of the reason why they originally broke off in some places as separate disciplines. And I know when I was looking for a job, I really wanted to be in a statistics department because I wanted my, when I went up for tenure, I wanted my, I wanted that to be evaluated by other people who were doing applied work. And that's not to say there's not a lot of theory in statistics, there is, but it all has to have an applied emphasis. And lots of mathematicians, and I totally understand this, I can get like this too, are just about the glory of the problem and the theorem. Mm -hmm. And that doesn't mean it's not useful. It certainly is. But their focus is on the mathematical beauty of the solution. And, you know, I get like that too. Statistics has a data focus. And I think for some students, it's more approachable then perhaps, for instance, a calculus class, although I would never, I mean, I use calculus all the time. It's definitely an important tool, but I think sometimes the statistics class can be less intimidating because you're working with numbers that are ones that you see on a daily basis. I'd like to thank Dr. McCann for sharing her insight with us. If you have any feedback, you can contact us at pokespodcasts at okstate.edu. And now we'll conclude with our favorite question, how are the arts and sciences making the world a better place? Well, I think that is really obvious in COVID times. Scientists help us understand the disease. Data analysts and statisticians help us make sense of the numbers. And then the fact that we've had to shut down, that we've been locked up, We certainly need art and music and great poetry and stories to read to help with our mental capabilities here during these times. This is an obvious indication of where all of arts and sciences are helpful in one way or another throughout what we're dealing with right now.